0: Jerry Rackliff again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Thomas Apt is a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. We chat about the motivation and aims behind his recent book, Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. Find out more in this episode at ReducingCrime.com and on Twitter at underscore Reducing Thomas Apt is a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. His book, Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence, was published by Basic Books in June 2019. His work's been frequently featured in major media outlets such as The Atlantic, Economist, New Yorker, New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Before joining Harvard, Thomas served as Deputy Secretary for Public Safety to Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, where he oversaw all criminal justice and homeland security agencies, and led the development of New York's successful GIVE initiative – that stands for Gun Involved Violence Elimination. Before that, he served as Chief of Staff to the Office of Justice Programs at the Department of Justice. There, he played a lead role in establishing the National Forum on Youth Violence Prevention, a network of federal agencies and local communities working together to reduce youth violence. I caught up with Thomas in the middle of basically his book tour for his new book, Bleeding Out. He talks about the importance of translating academia into evidence-based policy advice. I compare criminal justice initiatives to the cost of a new set of tyres for a fighter jet. In case you're wondering... To change the tiles on an F-18 Hornet costs about $100,000. You want to buy the entire plane? That's about $67 million. That single plane is worth more than the entire annual budget of the National Institute of Justice, the criminal justice research arm of the federal government. It does make you wonder how much we could improve the criminal justice system if we just cashed in a jet or two, doesn't it? But bet you've got a flight this afternoon.
1: Yes, you're not going to keep me for three hours. Are I'm you? not,
0: yeah, yeah, that's, that's the plan. <laughs> God, I have to edit these things. <laughs> a three hour, uh, that would take the rest of the year to do the edit on that. Uh, you've been doing a bunch of these now. Yes, yes, I have. Not a lot of people do this, you know. You, so here you are at the Union League Club in Philadelphia coming in to speak to city managers and city and people in the city and you have, we had some media there, we had some police people there, we had some city folk there. What are you learning from all of that?
1: Well, you know, I've been speaking to various audiences publicly and privately for a long time and so moving between media and community and law enforcement and activists and policymakers is something I did in the Obama administration, it's something I did for Governor Cuomo. So it's a skill that you develop over time and I think it's just paying attention to your audience and your context.
0: But that's for you. What are you learning about the cities and what their their need is or what they're asking or where they're weak and need to lift their game?
1: Sure. Uh, I apologize, I selfishly made it about me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a really interesting point as well, which is, I mean if we're going to start moving the needle with these kinds of audiences, we have to be less academic and more speak to what they need, and that's a learned skill.
1: Or we need to be academic when we're among academics, and we need to be able to read an audience and be less academic when we're not around academics.
0: So you've been picking up that skill, which is good, and that was evident today. I try.
1: I also, ultimately, you know, I want to have an impact. And I hope that... That's so unacademic. Right. I hope that these strategies ultimately are gonna save some lives. So I'm very interested in communicating and, you know, bringing people along on these issues. And so I I do what I can. But to your other question, as i move from city to city and obviously i had had a lot of experience in multiple cities before i wrote the book but it's only been reinforced as i've been you know talking about the book uh, over the past few months you know every city thinks they're special yeah. you know everyone says oh you don't know baltimore you don't know uh, philadelphia you don't know st louis but in general these problems look pretty similar Mm -hmm. uh, across contexts, and often the obstacles to progress. uh, In most cities that are not doing well in terms of controlling violence, there's a polarized political environment where you have people who are sort of uh, hyper-supportive of law enforcement versus people who are hyper-adversarial to law enforcement, and they've sort of battled each other to, to a standstill and so nothing is really getting done.
0: They've gone to each other almost to exhaustion.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You also have, generally speaking, a reflection of, the, of that conversation is that you'll have a lot of resources arranged around deep prevention and a lot of resor- uh, resources arranged around tough enforcement and very little in the middle. Right. On these sort of intervention, smart on crime, interventions that are sort of balanced with both carrots and sticks. And also then, you just see limited management capacity, limited technical capacity. Cities that are failing to reduce violence are not often hyper-competent in other
0: areas. Right, I I mean, I sometimes see, I don't know if you've seen this, but especially with this move towards things like a public health approach to violence. So you've got people whose expertise is epidemiology and public health. You've got people whose expertise is often frontline street policing. You've got people with these pockets of expertise, but nobody with expertise to form a sort of cohesive strategic plan. A police leader rarely gets that kind of how to run, put together a strategy, and if so, it's not how to put together a strategy with public health people who think completely differently. I see a lot of cities seem to just be missing a bigger plan, and part of your book has that notion at the back. I mean, I figure you probably recognise that limitation too, because you concluded an appendix, which was, here's how you work towards a plan, right?
1: Right, and you know, I was fortunate in that during my time at the uh, at the Justice Department under President Obama, I was coordinating a national initiative where we went city to city to develop comprehensive anti-violence plans. And so I saw cities doing better, doing worse. We were supporting them. We talked about what those plans needed to include. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I've been very lucky over my career to see this issue from all these different. Angles.
0: so but how many I mean sorry to interrupt but sure a chunk of those haven't survived mm-hmm. this is the struggle with this right because we coming in from outside the stuff doesn't survive internally there isn't the capacity it's it, we have to do something different but it, there seems to be such a willingness to fail conventionally
1: that's a great way to uh, way to say it I think that's very true that's the that's where the the least risk is
0: right because that's how we've always done it right.
1: You know, the, when the forum was assessed, we couldn't do a rigorous evaluation, but, you know, Jeff Butts from, uh, mm-hmm. uh, from John Jay uh, did an independent assessment. And he said that based on his metrics, we were improving the way the cities went about doing their anti-violence work. And I think given the modest scale of that effort, you know, is was really thrown together with initially less than five hundred thousand dollars at the national level good grief and then you know ultimately i don't think we ever scaled it up to more than two or three million dollars so it was a very light intervention and so to even have modest results was worthwhile but you know with give which is the uh, a more robust bust effort that I, i started in new york with more funding and more focus and having learned more we're seeing stronger results, and you know, uh, most notably in Newburgh, New York, which is at a massive reduction in violence.
0: It just astounds me that the kind of money that is being spent on things like violence reduction plans that drastically affects millions of Americans is kind of the equivalent of a set of wheels for a new F-18.
1: That really is shocking. I sometimes— And I have no
0: idea, by the way, how much a set of tires or a set of wheels for an F-18 cost, but I think those things cost a fortune or an F-22. But you know, one, the cost of one fighter jet sunk into the criminal justice system could— uh,
1: Transformative. Could, absolutely. Transformative. Any time I'm reading the paper and the actual dollar figures associated with defense come up, I have this reaction. It's I go, heart-stopping, isn't it? I go, oh my God what we could do with even a fraction mm-hmm. of that you know the the plan in in my book over 8 years to work with a nationwide plan 40 of the most violent cities save thousands of lives it's 899 million over 8 years that is like that's like a quarter of a plane
0: yeah or whatever oh less than that i mean these planes are coming in at tens of millions of dollars sometimes billions for the development and cost right. yeah
1: Yeah, so I I agree, and that's one of the things that… I
0: I think in Afghanistan, we've lost more than that falling out of the back of a Hercules.
1: (laughs) It's really, uh, it's sobering.
0: But what's interesting about that is, it's, yeah, that's just the air conditioning, it'll flick on and off. Maybe I can do something about it. I
1: think you're making it angry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm really fucking this up. I've taken the liberty here of editing out the five minutes where I bugger about with the air conditioning and eventually figure out how to switch the damn thing off. We were, we were uh, talking about defence. OK, yeah, so the amount of money that's being spent, that's right, just astounding. So that leaves the issue then, it seems that half the struggle of what you are trying to do is also to teach people how to form a plan. Not just what to put in the plan, but it seems you're also having to educate and train them how to make a plan.
1: Yes, I think that's right and you know how to create a plan that is actionable. So one of the things that I increasingly think is that uh, if your plan is sort of more than some, some maximum length, 10 pages, 15 pages, it ultimately is not a workable plan. You need a plan that people can read in one sitting, a plan that has deliverables, a plan that has names, dates, you know, smart goals, you know, specific, measurable, all of, all of those things. That may not be your outward facing plan because you don't necessarily want to put people on the spot, but there has to be that type of type of thing. And I have to tell you, I've implemented these plans myself in, you know, as, uh, as Head of Public Safety in New York, as Chief of Staff at the Office of Justice Programs, and it's hard to do. Oh, yeah. If you looked at my own personal success, in developing and then implementing these plans. You would give me, you know, maybe you'd give me a B plus, or, or a B. You know, it wouldn't be that...
0: Uh, That's okay, in my, I mean, I'm, a, I'm in a D category at this point, <laughs> like, I'm sitting at the back of the room failing to take notes, right. so don't worry.
1: And there's enormous resistance. I can tell you, like, sitting in meetings and sort of saying, okay, so, uh, you are gonna take on this concrete deliverable, correct? No commitment, accountability no commitment no commitment and you'll finish this by what date you know to get that out of people don't is, pin me down right is challenging in in any context and don't no, set
0: me up so I might fail right set me up so I can continue not doing my job
1: right and so not surprisingly I was a lot more successful when I was head of public safety and I had a lot more authority
0: right uh, that's interesting so, I mean the whole part about this then is that it n- needs to be all the, you've got an increase in accountability, because part of your appendix in the plan is you don't just separate out, you know, the idea is having a plan, but you're specific about what are you doing about prevention, what are you doing about intervention, and what are you doing about enforcement. So those are different pieces that are going to require different parts of the city to play nice. Correct. But all those parts of the cities have a tendency to want to focus on just the specific things You know, I think you almost see it in some of the questions and answers that you've been getting in some of the sessions, I think. They're not interested in so much what works. What they prefer to focus on is what feels good, Mm -hmm. what they think works, or what they've always done.
1: Well, I think one of the things that you see in our field, but you also see it in other places uh, in, in this work, is a lot of people claim to be focused on the problem, but in reality They are champions of a particular solution, right? Yep. And they are always trying to fit their solution to the problem. I think one of the things, one of the things that I tried to do when I approached writing this book, is I tried to be as agnostic as possible as to solutions and just go where the evidence led me. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that I was able to do that is because it was based on this systematic meta-review, and there are rules for how that is done. And you know, the fact is, is that the only strategies that really received an endorsement in the book are strategies for which there was a systematic review that had a number of quasi-experimental or experimental studies that studied it. So I did not talk about every promising strategy that I might like or that I might think worked. Ultimately I had a criteria and if it met the criteria it would be in the book And if it didn't it wasn't
0: and that's an interesting thing because so many people who are involved in evidence-based policy Such as people involved in evidence-based policing But it's more than that run into this issue that I find kind of fascinating Even if it just frustrates the hell out of me Which is people are quite happy to believe in science when it comes to climate change when it cut well most people when it comes to evolution well most people you know, they'll get in an aeroplane, which is fundamentally a great big metal tube flying six miles up, at uh, 500 miles an hour, quite happily, because it's just full of science and engineering. And then suddenly when it comes to another area, which is crime and crime prevention, which is a scientific field and it continues to emerge as a scientific field, at that point, no it's an art and it's my opinion and it's what I think and my experiences is equally as valuable as these 30 studies that went into this systematic review and it just drives me fucking crazy
1: Uh, I get it but I think one of the things when I was writing the book I began the chapter sort of about why haven't these policies received more attention and why have not they received more support Mm -hmm. and the original framing was we know what works So why isn't the word getting out? But then I really realized that this we who knows what works is actually exceedingly small. And we spend a lot of our time, this collective we, this small cadre of criminologists, crime researchers, uh, practitioners, talking to one another we are often not out there spreading the evidence-based evidence. I try not to talk to
0: criminologists. Have you met them? Good grief. I mean, at least a few of them are decent drinkers.
1: Right. So, so, uh, so I think that, you know, I think that we actually haven't always done our homework because, because we, in this, among this very small circle of researchers, yes, there's uh, a lot of consensus about what works. We understand the evidence. But is that true of most mayors? Is that true of most legislators? Absolutely not. Is it true of most people in the media? And so one of the things that the book is intended to do is kind of break out of our bubble.
0: I mainly thought the main reason I wasn't making any progress was because of my personality, but it's because there aren't enough people who, uh, well actually it probably is my personality in my case.
1: Jerry, I think you're making enormous progress despite your difficult personality. <laughs> Well played. <laughs>
0: oh, So true, it hurts but it's true. The issue of reaching out to people is a challenge because academics are not trained to do it. And I think this is where, you know, the book you've written is really interesting but also the effort that you're making to go to cities and go to speak to people speaks a lot to the fact that you've not always been heavily vested in academia. Well, and, I think I, and believe me, that's a compliment.
1: Right. Well, I think that, I think this is something that we share. I think you get enormous leverage uh, within the law enforcement community from the fact that you are a former law enforcement official. And not just, not just that, I think it informs your ability to communicate effectively with them.
0: If that's the case, it makes a challenge, therefore, which is spreading an evidence-based message, because a lot of the really good practitioners, uh, not practitioners, a lot of the really good People who understand this field and can make a significant contribution haven't necessarily had a practitioner background. And then you see these dichotomous views, which is they should have a practitioner back- background. So, well, that's crazy because we need to work better on helping other academics start to expand and move into more public facing criminology because that's kind of like saying, you can only treat my cancer if you've had cancer.
1: Right. Right, I absolutely agree. I'm a former prosecutor, and I I also get leverage uh, and credibility mm. among certain audiences for that.
0: And you're up in Manhattan too, right?
1: Uh, so there there are things like that. But I think that you and I, you know, and I think we both do this in our own respective ways. We have to kind of serve as ambassadors. We have to sort of open the door for other academics, uh, and not not that other academics necessarily need our help, but I, do, I agree with you that the message shouldn't be, you know, only trust academics who are former law enforcement. That would be a terrible message to send. I think the, the message should be sent is that we should be doing more action-oriented practitioner-researcher partnerships.
0: Oh, good grief, don't tell mainstream criminology that you want to do stuff that might actually be useful.
1: <laughs> uh, well, you, do you think you're not part of mainstream criminology?
0: Silence. That's a really interesting question. I don't think I'm part of mainstream anything, but that's just possibly me personally. The areas I'm interested in, like environmental criminology, which is, you know, for the listeners, it's the, you know, the criminology, the built environment, we're not talking about all slicks in Alaska. Uh, but that area, the built environment, you know, trying to think about why is there more drug dealing on that corner rather than the corner three or four blocks away, that I think is really fascinating. And I think that's becoming mainstream, but only in the last few years. We've had people working in those areas, but I think they've largely felt that they've been outside of mainstream criminology. Mainstream criminology still feels like it's absolutely focused on developmental life course criminology. And when you look at the, se- you know, the attendance at sessions at things like the American Society of Criminology, that's where so much of this is. And there's value in understanding that stuff. But I think for the policy relevance, to do what you're talking about, which is at, let's first stop the bleeding. That has very little value. Hmm. I think there's, these smaller areas are probably a little bit more niche. They're talking about the effectiveness of frontline policing, thinking about what's going on on street corners, there's micro-geography, these kind of factors, they aren't part of mainstream criminology by any stretch. And so the community that's available to be that outreach to the practitioners and the policy makers seems, still seems really small, and if we're starting to exclude people because they don't have a practitioner background, then we're really screwed.
1: I guess. I, I think I'm more optimistic. I think
0: that... I like that about you. That's good. <laughs> uh, I've been beaten down by my own miserable experience. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, I actually think that you're having a lot of success in reaching practitioners and you know, building this research. Uh,
0: I, give them something, I give them something to listen to while they're, while they're uh, driving in the car. Right. Don't, don't fall asleep on the drive home, folks.
1: I think you're uh, having some success. I obviously think that uh, you know pioneers like Larry Sherman, David Weisberg… Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sure. I mean, giants in the field. They've had significant impact. And so I'm optimistic that criminology that is both practical and rigorous is going to continue to influence policymaking. You know, we need more of it, and I, what I'm actually concerned about is that translation function.
0: Right. So the work's there. So we've got the academic work. I mean, there's obviously more that needs to be done. There's so many things that we don't know about. How do we take the message that you want to spread and how do we expand that to things like city and county managers? I think we speak to them.
1: I think we engage them. You know, I'm spending a lot of my time now thinking about can I go to the U.S. Conference of Mayors Uh, conference or the National League of Cities and can I have um, reach audiences there I think that many of us don't with a lot of intentionality go out and try to engage these various audiences we wait to be asked and I think that that is challenging and as we often do it's natural and it's understandable we're often more interested in what our colleagues our academic peers think Mm. than the, the world outside and I think that that while it's understandable uh, I think that that can be seductive, and ultimately, I ultimately, for me, I'm I'm a former policymaker, and I've been a policymaker and practitioner for much longer than I've been in ac- academia. And so, ultimately, for me, research is a means to an end.
0: One of the challenges of of trying to work within a policy environment when you're an evidence-based person is it's really easy to become negative about what's going on. And that's what frustrates me about mainstream criminology, is that people who are not heavily versed – I'll talk about policing because it's kind of more my area – who are not embedded in policing that really understand it, find it really easy to sit outside and just snipe and be negative, without really understanding some of the nuance. And that seems to be a model that a lot of people in academia find successful. I find that hugely frustrating.
1: Well. I think that
0: the standard book on
1: various issues, academic or otherwise, is always long on diagnosis and critique and short on concrete solutions. Right. I made a big effort for Bleeding Out to be really mostly devoted to solutions. I think that there's a balance and I think what frustrates me is when we're out of balance. I think we do need critiques from outside.
0: Absolutely, and, I'm not disputing that. Right. But it's the ba- as you say, it's the balance. It feels like it's so heavily weighted towards you guys working in policing your crap, mm-hmm. and then we follow up with, okay, and and then there's nothing. Right. Crickets.
1: I do think that uh, we have a lot of conversation about what the criminal justice system should not do. That's very important. But we also need a lot of conversation about what the criminal justice system should do and providing the field with affirmative guidance. And th- at the end of the day, as I say in the book, you know we need to shift the narrative from winning an argument to solving a problem. And it's nice way of putting it. Right. And I think it's it's, uh, it's easy to say, but quite hard to do. But ultimately for me, When I'm doing this work, what I'm sort of trying to gauge from people often is are you a problem solver or are you an argument winner? And if you're really just an argument winner, I'm going to probably try to find a way to spend a little bit less time and energy working with you. I'm going to try to spend more time. Whether I agree with you on the specifics or not, if I believe that you are a committed problem solver uh, and that you're working in good faith. I want to be helpful.
0: That's a great way of thinking about it because otherwise you can exhaust huge amounts of energy and we only have limited time. That's one of the frustrations of you know, working in an environment where you, know, you have to do multiple things or you have to be answerable to the university and be in committees and service and teaching. All those things are good, absolutely. But if you have a commitment to moving the field forward, first we have to identify what forward looks like and then have the time and energy to make those kinds of moves.
1: I agree. I agree.
0: I've got my own views on the book, which I enjoyed reading very much, uh, and, and I'll be upfront. I especially like the fact that you are brave enough, and it takes some guts to come up with, you know, here's an appendix with an actual plan, here's what you guys should do. Because so it's so easy to read, and I think a lot of practitioners complain that they get a lot of ideas from academia, but they tend to be abstract. There's lovely theoretical notions, but then I talk to cops on the street and say, well, that's great. And I get the theory, but will you just tell me what the fuck you want me to do? <laughs> what is it you actually want me to do? Right. Is that what you were trying to do with the book? It kind of, I got that sense of it, but is that yeah. what you were going for to some degree? Well, you know,
1: ultimately I come from the policy world, so I wanted to have a policy impact. And I really did write the book as a sort of how-to guide on saving lives and reducing violence. And so the idea is that it is a call to action, but it is all also very much sort of a practical roadmap. You know, you need networks, frameworks, and a plan. Uh, that plan needs to be focused, balanced, and fair. You need to focus on people, places, behaviors. You know, I made extraordinary efforts in the writing of this, thinking about the level of complexity, because. If you sacrifice too much complexity, you lose accuracy. And if you have too much complexity, you lose accessibility. And so striking that balance, I really uh, tied myself up in knots about that.
0: No, um, I, I get it completely, having written, are reducing crime, a companion for police leaders. You, I think
1: you were very successful.
0: You want to make it simple enough that people can remember it and will actually action it, otherwise it's pointless but then you run the risk of making it too simple and it loses some of that nuance and, and value. That, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle to find that balance. So let me ask you a
1: question. What did you not like about the book?
0: That is a good question. And I'm not sure I have an answer for you.
1: I'm interested, uh, you know, ultimately for me, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to make the work better. And so in an odd way, the criticisms are actually sometimes more valuable than the compliments because the criticisms gives you a, give you an opportunity
0: to improve. This is, so this is not a criticism of the book per se, but this is a, a, a struggle that I have generally, mm-hmm. which, and I've never found, I'm sorry, I'm not sure, I think you've come close, you came closer than I did. How do we take the horrible way that we articulate science around things like systematic reviews, Mm -hmm. which are full of discussions about odds ratios and confidence intervals and sample sizes and convey to people who are not interested in learning that and bless them for that because, you know, it's, it's only a masochist that dives into that, but convey to that to people who have actually got to try and learn from that and I think that's the biggest struggle because we want to convey to our scientific colleagues that we have done due diligence in understanding the scientific literature and the research and we've done a systematic review so we're not just making shit up as we go but then we have to convey that in a book form to people in a way that we're not Blowing their minds with these unnecessary terms, right. and I think that's incredibly difficult to do. And I think you came closer than I did, but I still think it's really difficult, you know, to sit in front of an audience of policymakers and practitioners and community people, and say, "Let me tell you about this systematic review, the 33 reviews, the odds ratios, and the confidence intervals." And at that point, you know, becomes a they're reaching for the phone. Right. To catch up on Twitter, you know?
1: Uh, I think it's, we can always aspire to do better. And I also have to say, you know, this is why you have editors. And so, I had people working with me to help me, you know, make this accessible. And I have to say,
0: you know, the… Well, collectively, you guys did a great job.
1: Yeah. And and I have to say, my editors made a real contribution. So. You know, the draft that I handed in was significantly improved. uh, And as Hemingway
0: said, the first draft of everything is shit. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He'd read a lot of my work, apparently.
1: Yeah, so uh, it is a process. And it was also helpful that my editors were not in the field.
0: Right. I I actually, for Reducing Crime, I sent draft copies to a few cops that I know, Mm. who I thought would be honest enough to give me feedback. And they did, they gave me great feedback. I probably wasn't able to well enough incorporate it in there. But it's tough because we think it's it's our baby and we think it's awesome, but you've got to send it to people who will tell you where you are. Right,
1: but at the same time, I think that you also want the work to be credible. And one of the things that I was very fortunate to do was that the Guggenheim Foundation set up a meeting where we invited, I think eight, eight or nine people people like David Kennedy, Tracy Mears, Pat Sharkey, Mark Kleiman. There's Juan, a few
0: luminaries in the field right, right there. Right,
1: but also uh, Walter Katz, who was uh, mm-hmm. Rahm Emanuel's head of public safety, Juan Carter, who's an effective street wo- worker out of Providence, Rhode Island, and others. And I, I got to sort of ahead of time check with people, is this credible? Is this a fair representation of the research? And again, the book was significantly improved.
0: You actually sent me some stuff, and I remember I remember appreciating you for doing that.
1: Absolutely, I actually, yes, you were one of many people who, you know, I'm also very fortunate because of my relationship at OJP, I was indirectly playing a role in funding so many criminologists that I have a great Rolodex. And so, you know, I ran the gang section by Scott Decker. Right. And I ran, you know some of the gun stuff by Phil Cook and Daniel Webster and you know sometimes they were like you know well done uh, not many corrections a few times you know they had significant comments that's great and and, the books
0: and the book is better for that right and I
1: and I my position was like I don't want to be surprised (laughs) you know I'd rather you tell me I got it wrong in private and I can fix it And, and, and ultimately I think Part of this is is that the book, at the end of the day, is really a synthesis of other people's work. There's really not that much sort of... I think the the highest compliment you could pay to me about the book is that Oh, you you arranged that well. You framed it well. You organized it well.
0: But that's really important because if we make people go off and people have started mocking me for saying this, but if we make people go off and and force them to read the latest issue of the Bangladeshi Journal of Sheep Stealing and Criminology, nobody's ever going to read scientific literature again. Right. So the challenge that I think the rearrangement, the translation, the conversion into something that approximates policy-maker language is not only huge, but it's horribly undervalued in academia, Right. whereas if you write, you, know, you almost don't get rewarded for writing stuff that is comprehensible to normal human beings, and that is, I think, a horrible failing of academia generally.
1: Well I also think there's this massive bias towards novelty in academia, mm. which is that you are rewarded for pioneering and coming up with new ideas. And that's good in some ways. But it also means that you often sort of don't intellectually play nice. And you don't always fully acknowledge that your work is standing on the shoulders of all of these other people. And that you are often, people are often so concerned with sort of intellectually branding their work and differentiating. For me, I am a synthesist. And so I am not trying to represent.
0: That's not a member of an 80s electronic band, is it? (laughs)
1: Uh, And so I'm not trying to represent the work as this, you know, as original uh, things. I'm trying to do the best I can to represent your work, Anthony Braga's work, David Weisberg's work, you know, and the work of many, many others. And again, I think that's about really being focused on working towards a solution as opposed to branding yourself or sort of, you know, focusing on a problem rather than branding yourself about a, perfect, uh, a, per- a particular solution. Yeah. If this book, if, if the evidence swings and, if this, uh, and we learn things that are contrary to this book in 10 years, I'll write something else that says I take it all back. What's next for you? I think in the, uh, in the immediate term, I want to uh, do everything I can to make sure that this book influences practice. And so I wanna help cities like Philadelphia, Baltimore, St. Louis, other places, if they're interested in putting these principles into practice, I wanna be supportive. And so uh, I'm gonna be doing a lot of that. But I think ultimately, I see my career, and it's obviously not all up to me, but I see my career as going back and forth between academia and government. And so I hope to return to government in some capacity At some point,
0: we'll be better off for it.
1: Well, we'll see.
0: Thomas, good luck with it. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 18 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Philadelphia in September 2019. Other episodes look at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Be safe and best of luck.